0: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Today, Adam Schatz talks about Israelis and Gaza, Palestinians and Hamas. Coming up in a minute.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.
0: We need to talk more about Israel and Hamas, the Palestinians in Gaza. For that, we turn to Adam Schatz. He's the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books and former literary editor of The Nation. He's also written for The New York Times Magazine, The New York Review of Books, and The New Yorker. His book, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination, was published in May, we talked about it here. His new book, is on France Fanon. It's titled The Rebels Clinic. It will be out in January. And he has a big piece on Israel and Gaza out now at the LRB. We reached him today at Bard College. Adam, welcome back. Thank you, John. We are speaking on Tuesday, October 24th. As of today, Israel has killed more than 5,700 Palestinians in Gaza. According to the Gaza Health Ministry, mostly civilians, including more than 2,300 children. The UN humanitarian office says 1.4 million people have now been internally displaced. That's more than half of Gaza's population. Meanwhile in Israel, the toll from the Hamas attacks on October 7th has reached about 1,300 dead and at least 3,300 wounded. I think it's 289 of the dead were soldiers, the rest civilians. 222 hostages are being held right now in Gaza, Israelis and some foreign nationals. Today, we are waiting for Israel's invasion of Gaza, which of course will kill and injure lots more Palestinians. You open your piece for the LRB with a report about life in the Gaza Strip now. Interviews the New York Times podcast did last week with two Palestinians, starting with a man in Rafah at the Egyptian border. He told her, "What's happening here is not about Hamas
3: at all." What did he say it was about? Well, um, he said, that "This is you know this is not about Hamas. He's not a member of Hamas. He doesn't have political sympathies with Hamas. He felt that it's a war against the Palestinian people, and that their crime had been to be born Palestinian." And um, I think that is a very strong sentiment that runs among uh, people in Gaza. We have to remember that Hamas is not particularly popular, has not been particularly popular uh, in Gaza in recent years, um, in large part because of its authoritarian rule. And um, in fact, it's often said, and this may be an exaggeration, but maybe not too great an exaggeration, that um, Hamas is more popular in the West Bank than it, is, than it is in Gaza and the reverse for Fatah. And you know there has been a tendency to um, conflate Hamas and the people of Gaza and to thereby um, justify uh, Israel's violence against ordinary Gazans. The New York Times uh, ran a story a, a day or two ago um, in which um, the reporter estimated that about 13, at least 13 Hamas leaders had been killed in Gaza, 13 out of now over 5,000 dead.
0: In your piece, you also quote the great Israeli journalist Amira Haas, who's been reporting on Palestinian life now for decades. What did she say about Gaza?
3: Amira Haas uh, wrote in her uh, uh, great book on Gaza, Drinking the Sea at Gaza, that Gaza embodies the central contradiction of the state of Israel. Democracy for some, dispossession for others. It is our exposed nerve. You know, Israelis don't say go to hell. They say, they say go to Gaza, which tells you something about how the Gaza Strip is perceived in Israel.
0: Let's talk about Hamas for a minute. Hamas knew their attack on October 7th would provoke a massive Israeli bombing of Gaza and an Israeli ground invasion and maybe sustained occupation. Hamas knows. It can't protect the people of Gaza from Israeli retaliation. So what
3: what is their strategy here? What were their motives on October 7th? Well, there are their motives, and then there's the strategy, and those obviously are two different things. And um, before I um, go on to talk about that, I just want to register that um, an event of this scale, I think, elicits as one's first response, not even an attempt to explain or to assess motives, but a kind of mute horror, because this is, you know, this is, a, major, this is a major war crime, a crime against humanity. You know, to some people, to, to many observers, um, what Hamas did may seem inexplicable, or to, to use another adjective that has often been uh, cited, um, unprovoked. But, but Hamas's uh, motives uh, are not very mysterious. Um, they wanted to reassert the primacy of the Palestinian struggle at a time when it seemed to be falling off the agenda of the international community. They wanted to secure the release of the more than 5,000 uh, Palestinian political prisoners um, in Israeli jails. They wanted to uh, scuttle the rapprochement between uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, the so-called Abraham Accords. They wanted to humiliate Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian authority that he leads um, in the West Bank. They wanted to protest against uh, settler violence in the West Bank, which has been particularly extreme under the Netanyahu government, which is headed by uh, settler zealots, and extremists. Um, they wanted to protest the visits of religious Jews and Israeli officials to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, and and I think you know they also wanted to send a message to the Israelis that um, the Israelis are not invincible and that they have to pay a price for maintaining the status quo in Gaza. I suspect too, John, that that provoking an Israeli uh, response, a very fierce response, a, a, a potential ground invasion, uh, may have figured in their strategy because the likely result of that is to drive people even further into the hands of Hamas and also i think this is something that i don't think people are have really uh, i don't think people have really considered to make armed struggle the sole means by which palestinians speak to deal with israelis because you know it's not particularly well understood in the west but there are rich traditions of protest and civil disobedience among Palestinians. The first intifada from 1987 until 1991 was defined largely by nonviolent, unarmed civil disobedience. The second intifada obviously was a a violent one. I think that Hamas wants to transform itself, wants to project itself rather, as the sole legitimate authority of the Palestinian people and as the, the vanguard of an armed struggle. You note there were two distinct and radically different parts
0: of the October 7th attack. First, the Hamas fighters broke through the Gaza border and fence and attacked military outposts, killed hundreds of Israeli soldiers, took 250 more soldiers hostage. You call this, quote, a classic and legitimate form of guerrilla warfare against an occupying power. And you distinguish sharply between that... And the second phase of the Hamas attack, where Hamas fighters were joined by residents of Gaza on a killing spree, hunting down civilians on the kibbutzes near the border, remind us about the difference between these and and the
3: horrors of the second part. Well, first of all, you know, I want to I want to underline, John, that I'm not saying that these are two strictly demarcated sequential phases, because for one thing, we don't know, and secondly. We also don't know what the explicit orders were of the Hamas commanders. Was the mass carnage part uh, of the plan that Hamas had developed over the last, what seemed to be the last two years? Or was it some kind of deviation from the plan? Was it that the soldiers were not under strict orders, were undisciplined and began rampaging, along with, of course, other ordinary Gazans who had followed Hamas um, uh, into southern Israel? We don't know. And I and I think that it would it would not be right for me to su- to suggest otherwise. But it does seem to me that there are distinctions to be drawn between launching a military operation that targets representatives of Israeli state power and the um, Israeli soldiers, and an operation that designates as its targets ordinary civilians, men, women, children, even babies, and to slaughter them in cold blood. And then, of course, as we know, also. To uh, post videos of the killing on the social media uh, social media sites of the families of victims. This is something that is um, is quite different, it seems to me, and 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 deeply troubling. Um, and of course, there is a possibility that this was calculated. We simply don't know. We've been told that the initial
0: Hamas attack on October seventh was Israel's nine eleven that underestimates the impact, the percentage of the Israeli population killed that day is many times greater than 9-11. The methods of killing were far more personal and and bloody, but the 9-11 comparison does work in a couple of ways. One is refusing to talk about the root cause of the attacks. In this case, the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. Many Israelis and, and their supporters in the United States have a a strange ability to simply forget about the occupation. I doubt there are any Palestinians on the West Bank or in Gaza who can forget about
3: the occupation. That's true, John. To be a Palestinian is to remember the occupation, you know, every minute of your life. Um, And Palestinians, of course, also remember uh, the 1948 Nakba, the catastrophe. And you know it's worth recalling here that um, we can't really refer to Gazans because two thirds of the people in Gaza are the children and grandchildren of people who were driven out of what is now Israel in 1948. The occupation was clearly one of the motivations be- behind this uh, horrific assault, because in recent years, um, Israel has been able to cobble together deals with a variety of Arab countries, Arab countries that are interested in Israel's Pegasus technology its surveillance systems to to monitor their own dissidents. And uh, Netanyahu, who's always believed, who's always insisted that Israel could transcend what he called the territorial dimension of the conflict, really thought that he was making the Palestinian issue disappear. And I would say that among all the motives for this attack, and there were many, perhaps the most important was to say, no, we're still here. And there can be no peace in this region without us. I'm sorry, but we need to pause for a break here. We'll be back in
0: a
2: minute. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.
0: Adam Schatz, he's the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books and former literary editor of The Nation. In your LRB piece, you suggested that a closer parallel to 9-11 is the Algerian Revolution. The FLN killed lots of French civilians who lived in Algeria and, of course, eventually drove the French settlers back to mainland France, even though they'd been in Algeria for more than a century there's lessons here that are being studied by both hamas and by
3: the israelis right i mean of course there are you know there are just differences the israelis unlike the french in algeria don't have a homeland to go back to so there there are distinctions and yet at the same time israel is a country that um, originated in colonial settlement and a country where waves of settlement have continued over the years because israel is not merely a state, it's, it's a movement of colonization of the entire territory of Mandi- Mandate Palestine. The parallel that I was alluding to had to do with, a, um, with a, an uprising that took place in 1955, uh, less than a year after the Algerian independence struggle began. in a a harbor town uh, called Philippeville in Eastern Algeria. The FLN had found itself at an an impasse that it was having a hard time breaking out of, not unlike Hamas confined to Gaza in a 17 year siege, in a sense reduced to governance without being able to break out of its confines. And so the FLN uh, decided to carry out a very bloody attack in which uh, dozens of French people and also some Algerians um, were killed. And this massacre um, led the uh, French to commit uh, terrible atrocities afterward. About 12,000 Algerians were killed in the weeks after the Philippe uprising. And the result was to create a kind of river of blood that separated the two populations and to drive even the most moderate Algerians into the hands of the FLN. It was the turning point in that war. In the debate that's been going on, Each side accuses the
0: other of Nazi-like atrocities. Uh, Of course, that's a very powerful image in the history of the Jewish people. What do you make of the current charges being hurled back and forth?
3: Well, first of all, on an emotional level, John, it's understandable that... um... You know that Jews have reached out for um, Holocaust and pogrom analogies in order to understand um, the October 7 attacks, even if these analogies are not perhaps the most instructive for understanding of uh, what has transpired, as 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 obscene as it is. And it's understandable too that Palestinians um, suffering these horrendous levels of violence in Gaza would see their oppressors as um, as Nazis. I I, I don't uh, judge this behavior because these are people caught in an absolutely horrible situation, but I, I've always been very wary of introducing analogies to Nazism in the Holocaust when discussing this issue, and for a number of reasons. First, the Israelis have shamelessly instrumentalized the Holocaust in defense of inhumane and brutal policies of expulsion, land confiscation, and of course, this occupation, which is now over 50 years old, and faced with israel's abuse of the holocaust and with the suggestion that their own suffering can never measure up to jewish suffering in the second world war palestinians have responded either by calling the israelis nazis or by denying that the holocaust ever happened that it's just Zionist propaganda now this is not an intellectual argument this is just verbal warfare and you know the nazification of the enemy whether it's by the much more powerful party the israelis or by the weaker party palestinians has prevented both of them from understanding something that Edward Said constantly emphasized, which is that the Palestinians are victims of victims. I think that this insight of Said is not just a moral one, it's also a political one, because people who think of themselves as history's victims and who are determined never again to be victims are capable of resorting to the most extreme and even genocidal forms of violence, as we saw with the Serbs in Bosnia, as we're now seeing with the Israelis in Gaza. The attack on October 7 stirred the deepest fear in the Israeli Jewish psyche, the fear of annihilation. Just listen to the language of people like Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, who describes Palestinians as human animals. Another Israeli official said the objective here is not, is to inflict damage on Gaza. And, you know, they've inflicted quite a lot of it. So I'm afraid to say that the campaign that Israel is conducting now in Gaza, you know, 5,000 people killed, 2,000 children, is forcing me to reassess my own resistance to the use of the term genocide. It seems to me there's been a progression in Israel's posture towards the Palestinians, especially those in Gaza, from expulsion to discrimination, oppression, occupation, Um, to now levels of violence that remind us of Russia and Grozny, or episodes in the Second World War. Um, Israel's objective may still be what Baruch Kimmerling, an Israeli sociologist, called politicide, the elimination of the Palestinian people as a political entity, but it's moved very rapidly since October 7 to something closer to ethnocide. Um, It's a horrific development for the Palestinian people who are suffering unimaginably, but it's also a tragic chapter in the history of the Jewish people and their transformation from victims to perpetrators. Israel is running a great risk by building its security on the ruins of Gaza, and I fear that Jews abroad could be placed at grave risk by what Israel's doing.
0: And we also need to talk about uh, American policy, which of course means Joe Biden. You are uh, very critical of Biden's policy in your LRB piece. On the other hand, Biden in his Oval Office primetime speech said, I think, three really important things. He said, first, the U.S., quote, remains committed to the Palestinian people's right to dignity and to self-determination. The actions of Hamas terrorists don't take that right away, close quote. And second, he emphasized to Netanyahu quote, the critical need for Israel to operate by the laws of war. That means protecting civilians in combat as best they can, close quote. And third, he told Bibi that, quote, the people of Gaza urgently need food,
3: water and medicine. That's pretty much what I hoped he would say. Right. I mean, he said said some of the right things, these quotes that you um, just cited. But what kind of pressure um, is being applied? I mean, I see them dispatching aircraft carriers. And preventing uh, their diplomats from from using language like uh, cease or reducing the harm to civilian lives and so on. Of course, there was also a, a you know State Department official um, who oversaw the arms transfers to Israel who recently resigned and published a very um, eloquent letter uh, denouncing the policy and said he could no longer work for the administration for the for the government. Um, so. I see yet another stark contrast between these very reassuring words about the US's ultimate intentions with respect to a Palestinian state. And it's all too um, indulgent policy of permitting Israel to reign what is essentially state terror on the Gazan people. I mean, one hopes the Gazan people will, will survive to see such a state when you observe the kind of combat tactics that Israel is currently using. Jake Sullivan, the US national security advisor, was quoted as saying that the administration defined the success of the war as ensuring the security of the Jewish people. What about the Palestinians? Don't they deserve security as well? It it seems that that's not a consideration of ours. I should add, by the way, that Biden has also discouraged the Israelis from pursuing a second, from opening a second front and attacking Hezbollah um, in, in Lebanon, which would, could gravely um, escalate the conflict and draw Iran in. But the uh, Israeli military, which seems even more emboldened than Netanyahu himself, and remember Netanyahu has, has historically been very reticent about getting involved in ground defenses, um, the Israeli military is appears to be pushing ahead with that. The uh, tensions on the border, on the Israeli-Lebanese border, have, um, have increased, um, and there is a possibility that if the ground invasion of Gaza begins, then um, Hassan Nasrallah, um, uh, Hezbollah's secretary general, who's been quite cautious so far, only attacking symbolically, really, the Sheba farms, may feel that he has no choice but to enter the battle. And that's a, that's a very scary thought.
0: And one last thing, suppose Israel succeeds at its proclaimed goals of killing the leaders of Hamas and lots of its fighters, will that be the end of the organization?
3: I doubt that very much. Hamas uh, has a political leadership outside the country, much of it um, is in Qatar. Hamas is an organization that does not represent the majority of Palestinians, but it is an important part of Palestinian political society, and I do not think that it can be eliminated uh, by force of arms. I think that's a fantasy. I mean, we may not like Hamas, whether it's for attacks like October Seven, or its its views about uh, gender and homosexuality, or its um, its religious intolerance. But the reality is that Hamas has deep roots in the society, and uh, its influence has been abetted, I'm afraid, uh, by the Israelis. Hamas has been the enemy that it wants to prevent the emergence of a Palestinian state and to weaken the Palestinian Authority. And, and Netanyahu has been very clear about that. As recently as 2019, he said that his policy was to strengthen Hamas. And at the same time, Hamas has been a kind of ally. As, as long as Hamas is there in Gaza, the Israelis can say, we have no partner for peace. Now, obviously, that, that delicate and what we now see as a, as a lethal dance with Hamas, that's over. The Israelis um, are not interested in shoring up Hamas. They're interested in liquidating it. But I think that's a, it's a, it's an utter fantasy. And even if Hamas were to be vanquished, it would reappear either under the name Hamas or under a different name, or or it might be uh, succeeded by an even more radical organization. I mean, it's kind of a miracle, given the extreme suffering to which uh, the people of Gaza have been subjected for so many years, that more radical forms of political Islam haven't taken root there. There has not really been all that much of an ISIS problem in the Gaza Strip. There have been a, a scatter, scattering of radical Islamists, but very few. That too could change your final thoughts today you know, my final thought john is that the only thing that can really rescue the people of both israel and palestine israeli jews and palestinian arabs and of course also palestinian citizens of israel and prevent another nakba you know the great um dispossession displacement of palestinians that occurred in 1948 is a political solution that recognizes all of the inhabitants of Israel-Palestine as equal citizens, and allows them to live in peace and freedom. No matter the framework, whether it's a single democratic state or two states or a federation. And so long as that solution is avoided, we will see a continuing degradation and possibly a greater catastrophe.
0: Adam Schatz, he wrote about Israel and Palestine, Hamas and Gaza, for the London Review of Books. Adam, thanks for your work on this. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios renee reynolds is our associate producer alan minsky is our producer ludwig hurtado is our executive producer dd guttenplan is editor of the nation Boscar sunkara is president of the nation and katrina vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation our theme music is from barcelona afrobeat licensed by creative commons you can find out more about start making sense at thenation.com And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.